are finishing, concluding our message on courage. The first week we started with David as a shepherd boy, and we started with him uh, killing the lion, speaking about him killing the lion, killing the bear, as well as going on to slay Goliath. And as a young man, how God used him courageously. So that was one parenthesis in the month of September. The end parenthesis for this topic is again with David, but now it's not David as a shepherd boy, now it's David as a king. And he's in the last days of his life, and he's... he's prepared his uh, kingdom for his son Solomon to take over. So that's where we're going to, we're going to talk about that today. And in between David as a shepherd boy all the way through to the last days of his life, there were some key things that he did courageously. And trust that it gives you and I encouragement as we do that. The definition of legacy is something transmitted by or received from an ancestor or predecessor from the past. The introduction for us this morning is that people who leave a legacy, like I said, have a common thread. And you'll find a scripture in your notes, Exodus 20, verse 5 and 6. It says this. Why don't you say this out loud with me, would you? Let's say this together. You should not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who keep me, sorry, love me and keep my commandments. Do you know where that is found? Right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. So here's this list of commandments, and he stops and he puts something very important in there, and it's talking about the generations are somebody that has hated him and how because of that hatred, that legacy of hatred can actually go three to four generations. You might be here this morning and say, I might, you might be the first generation Christian in your family and you're, you love God, but you feel like there's just some things from your, your family past that just hover around you. You're not quite sure how to deal with it. It doesn't take much, but that needs to be broken according to this. And say so that generational curse is not a part of my life. I've set a new standard for, for the generations that go after me, not looking back to the ones that went before me. And then for the ones, the encouragement that when we make that kind of decision, he goes on for thousands. The blessings and the mercy go on to thousands. And you can see the goodness of God he says, it's, there's goodness of God in the land of the living. In fact, David said, I would have despised, I would have despaired. Had I not believed, I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And trust me, I think, as you know, David, I think, knew that he, he had places of great, um, uh, just of such defeat and such failure. And uh, so that's, it's interesting that we would find that right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Two examples of legacy leavers, both from the 1700s. One was born in 1700, one in 1703, and the courage to leave a legacy. Two men, different legacies, different direction. Listen to this. First one is Max Lukes, born 1700, an avowed atheist despised the Bible and married a woman of like character. She lacked principle, faith, and was steeped in the occult. Out of their 1,200 descendants, 310 were professional vagrants, 440 wrecked their lives through debauchery, 130 went to jail, seven for murder, 
Average sentence, 13 years. More than 600 became alcoholics. 60 were habitual thieves. 190 became public prostitutes. 20 became tradesmen. 10 of them who learned that trade in prison. One generation. The next generation, Jonathan Edwards, born in 1703, a man of God, married to a woman of like character. He was 17 and she was 13. Do we have any 13-year-olds in here this morning? Anybody 13? They're probably in children's church. 13. Can you imagine your 13-year-old? Can you imagine a man coming to you and asking for your 13-year-old daughter's hand in marriage? I don't think so. Come back. We had uh, one daughter, I think she was 15, and had a young man come and ask if, she could, if he could date her. And we said, are you kidding? She's 15. You're like 18 or 19. No, come back in 10 years. You can come. <laughs> he never came back. <laughs> now that I think about it, no, he didn't come back. Okay, Jonathan Edwards, a man who married when she was 13. On their wedding night, they committed their marriage to the Lord, and their descendants included 300 clergymen, some missionary and theological professors, 100 professors, 100 attorneys, 30 judges, one dean of a law school, 60 physicians, one dean of a medical school, three mayors of large cities, 60 authors of fine classics, 14 presidents of universities, three state governors, one controller of the U.S. Treasury, and one vice president of of the USA. Legacy. The difference of what you leave. So where are you today? What type of legacy do you want to leave beyond yourself? You might be saying, I don't really care. I don't even, I don't care if I leave a legacy. Well, whether you care or not, you will. And that's something that we just have to kind of get our mind around that I can't just live this life and say, I'm not going to bother anybody else. It's just about me and it won't bother anybody else. That's not true. Your life does affect other people. And we have to make a decision and just wake up to that this morning and say, you know what? Whether I like it or not, my life will make a difference and it does affect other people. What kind of choices am I going to make to determine the future for some other people? So as I said, we started the series with David, concluding it today. First Chronicles 22, 14 to 19, they're in your notes. This is David uh, now as a, as a speaking to his son Solomon. You notice what he says to him right at the beginning. He says, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. That sounds like Joshua with Moses. Same thing. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do you think the Lord is trying to tell us something? Be strong and courageous. In, in 2011, September in Vancouver, the Lord is still saying, be strong and courageous. And then he goes on to say this, David, to his son, indeed, I have taken much trouble to prepare. And he goes on to list all the things that he's prepared for his son Solomon in building the Lord a temple. And he's, he's a man that prepared. I know that after I'm gone, something has to live beyond me. And so he went to great lengths to prepare something. It's interesting when you read during this portion of the scripture, and I'd encourage you to read from about 1 Chronicles 17 onward. There's a lot that's going on in David's life during that time. At one point, David's walking through his home, and he's saying, here I am living in this gorgeous house of cedar, and God is in a tent. I'm going to build him a house made of cedar. And he tells Nathan the prophet, we're going to build God a house. Nathan has a dream and comes back 
to David and has the Lord speak through him as a prophet to King David and says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, you'll have to read it, but he's saying, the Lord says, when did I tell you to build me a house? In other words, David thought it was a great idea, but the Lord went on to tell him, do you think I can be housed in a building? Do you think my presence can be housed in a building? In David's mind, he thought, I'll build a house and God can dwell in it. God can't be, he can't dwell in a house made with hands. He dwells inside now. He dwells inside us. So the Lord spoke to him and David got it. He says, you can't build me a house. In fact, God says, I'm going to build you a house. And basically, then he went on to do what, what we call a messianic prophecy. And he prophesied about the coming of his son, Jesus, at that time and said how his house would go on forever and that he would forever be on the throne. And what did Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And back then, the, God was already speaking that to David. But David got it. And when he put all the material together for the temple, for Solomon to build the temple, it wasn't to house the presence of God. Rather, it was to signify, it was a sign that the presence of God was manifest among them. And this was a sign, it was a place in the name of the Lord that his name would go forth, that this generation or this nation uh, had God as at the helm. Even so, this building that you're sitting in today, there's no way a church building can house the presence of God. That's not why we contended for this building was so that you can house God's presence. No, it's a place where the name of the Lord can be, it signifies that the name of the Lord is raised up in the, in the city of Vancouver, that Jesus is Lord of Vancouver. And when people see the building, when we see something, we, it's just a symbol that presence of God is in this city. And that's what it was with the temple. And David got it. Okay, I can't put God into a building, but I certainly, we can build him something and it'll, it'll be very symbolic that his presence is amongst us. And so he did. And he went on to go through this uh, with him, with his son Solomon. Just a little side note in reading those chapters, you'll find it very interesting because, you know, when you're courageous for something, you step out and you do something that is so beyond anything that you ever thought you would do. It gives people around you courage. Have you ever read an autobiography of someone and while you're reading that, you're stirred? You think if that person could do that, maybe I could step out and do something as well. That's why I love reading autobiographies. And in particular, teenagers who stepped out and did something far beyond what their capabilities or their education were and how God uses them. I think of Brusco, Bruce Olson, who went to, uh, to Latin America, and he went to the Molon Indians, and he, and he didn't know the language, and every white missionary that had ever showed up there was, was arrowed to death. I'm not sure how you, it's not shot, I guess you're arrowed to death. Never really thought about that before, but anyway, that's what it was. And he survived. He was with them for five years, trying to hear their language, trying to understand what they were saying. It took him five years before he even had the first opportunity to talk about Jesus. And how many of us would be that courageous to step out? But they, there was something inside that I've got to do this. And you read that and you see, well, if he can do that, surely I can step out and do something. And during this time of the scriptures uh, in, in First Chronicles, one of David's brothers sons. Remember the brothers? They're the ones that were out 
with King Saul during the time of Goliath, and David comes to bring them lunch, and they're like, what are you doing here? Well, one of those brother's sons actually during this time kills another giant himself. And I think when he saw Uncle David or heard about Uncle David killing a giant, he said, well, okay, this has been, I can do this too. Really interesting story, though, because the giant that he slayed was known for being the 24-digit giant because he had six fingers on each hand and he had six toes on each foot. And you can read about him. It's kind of an interesting little... It's got absolutely nothing to do with being courageous as far as like the six-finger stuff, but it's kind of, it's not a neat little piece. See, you can go tell somebody, do you know that there was a giant in the Bible that had, it was called the 24-digit giant, do you know what that means? And they'll go, no, and you'll sound so smart because you can tell them, I never knew that. There's three characteristics we're going to look at this morning in leaving a legacy and have courage to do it because it is for every one of us. The first one is there is a cause with a conviction. David's conviction for the name of the Lord was for the name of the Lord to be upheld, not defiled. And you know, that conviction took him all the way through his life. When he was convicted as a young shepherd boy that God's name would not be defiled, and he spoke out to, to Goliath, and what do he say? He says, this day, what? I'm going to feed you to the birds. I mean, he was pretty bold. But there was such a conviction in his heart that this man was defiling what? His God. It wasn't defiling his people. It wasn't his brothers. It wasn't his king. It was his God. It took him all the way through his life so that when he wanted to build that temple for the Lord, why did he want to, why was there a conviction for that? Because I want the name of the Lord to be upheld in our nation. And when you have a conviction, you'll, you'll find a cause that will help project that conviction. When we went after this building that you're sitting in, the conviction was to have the name of the Lord upheld in the city of Vancouver. The cause was getting the building. It was just the building. But what's your conviction? Your conviction can't be the building. Your conviction can't be your job. The conviction can't... What's the conviction? The conviction has to come, the root of it has to come for it to be successful from the Lord. It has to be in that time of, of being with him. Oh, how he loves it when we just spend time with him and we just hear his voice and we hear him out. He's thought so many thoughts about you already. What are those thoughts? I love you. You're... What, what kind of thoughts do you think he thinks? He's thinking about ways that you can leave a legacy. He's thinking of ways that his spirit can flow through you to touch others. He's thinking of ways that you can be his hands and his feet that can go far beyond what you ever dreamt you could ever do. That's what he's thinking about. So doesn't it make sense then for us to, when we're in his presence and when we're meditating on his word, in our lives to be at a place where we say, yes, sir, rather than this is what I want to do. I've got this plan, I've got this plan, I've got this plan, this plan. Now, God, would you bless it? And maybe you've been there. I certainly have. And how he's arrested that plan and he stopped it short because... It wasn't his plan for my life. I thought it was a really great plan. I thought it made sense, and, but he had, such, uh, he had so much more in mind. His thoughts, it says his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways aren't our ways. He, it goes so beyond what we could think. So doesn't it make sense for us to stop and say, okay, God, I'm, here's where I'm at today. This is the path on my life, of my life. I'm right here. Now, I'm going to continue on this unless 
unless there's a red light, unless you put a stop to it, I'm going to continue on there. And I, I just pray, God, that you would open doors that no man could close. And would you close the doors that no man could open so that I can know it is you. In fact, he said he'd go before you and make rough places smooth. What's rough in your life right now? What looks like a rough water? He said, I'll go before you and I'll make it smooth. He says, I'll, I'll, what, what iron bars are in front of you? Those things, you just, I can't get through this. It's, I can't get past this. He says, I'll cut through the iron bars. That's what he said in Isaiah, I'll, I'll cut through it. Why? He goes on to say why. In order that you may know it is the Lord God of Israel who calls you by your name. In other words, I want you to know that I'm for you and I'm with you. I'll go ahead and I'll do those things. And if you don't find him speaking to you, it's usually because we haven't done what we, he last asked us to do. And we can never jump over that hoop of obedience. If there has been a step of disobedience in our life, it blocks that. Say, oh, what was that last thing he asked me to do or he asked you to do? Then say, okay, God, by your grace, I'm going to do that so I can keep going forward and I can keep hearing your voice. He said that you'll hear his voice. You say, well, I don't hear God's voice. No, he said you'd hear my voice. And the voice of a stranger, you won't follow. That's good news for us. Because the enemy likes to come in and say, you don't hear God's voice. Who do you think you are that God has a plan for you? Oh, she's talking about other people, but she's not talking about you. You couldn't do that. See, that's how he, he thinks. And God's saying, no, be strong and courageous. Don't tremble, don't be dismayed. Think my thoughts, think my ways. I'll go before you and make rough places smooth. Meditate on that. And that's what David had to do. In fact, at one point, David was in such a place of defeat. He was tired, and he came to a, a city called Ziklag. And when he got there, he found that his two wives had been captured, his children. The whole city had been plundered. It was on fire. And the, the men came into that place, a place that they were expecting it to be a place of refuge, and it was a mess. And it says they were too tired to even weep. They couldn't even cry about it. They were so exhausted. And at that time, it also says that the very men, mighty men around David that had been with him and were like, go, David, we're here with you, wanted to stone him. So here he is at a place of, I mean, it just doesn't, he's, I'm at the low of the lows. I've been through some lows, but that's a low. And he's there. And you know what the Bible says he did? Gave up. No. It doesn't say he gave up. It says he encouraged himself in the Lord. He couldn't find courage from anywhere else but from God. And there's sometimes, you, you might be in that situation where you feel like everything's just been burnt up in front of you and everything's been stripped away and taken away. You feel like you're in a place of zigzag and there's nobody for you and they've turned their backs on you. What do you do? You encourage yourself in the Lord. And you go back to the basics. You say, okay, God, I'm yours. I was called. I have a conviction Allow the cause to be manifest for your name's sake the way it was for David. So number one, there's a cause with a conviction. Number two, there is a thought and a preparation for the next generation. David gave impartation to Solomon, and as his days were coming to the close of a life, he spoke to him, and he said, again, be strong. But this time he doesn't say be strong and courageous. He says, be strong and stand up and be a man. Wow. Okay, Dad. What? What? Exactly do you mean by that? What am I supposed to do? Has anyone ever had someone older or a father say, be strong, be, stand up and be a man? So what, what do you mean when you say that? David explains what he means. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, one. Walk in his ways, two. 
Keep his statutes, three, his commandments, four, his judgments, five, and his testimonies, six, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That's what it is. We always think it's so much harder. It's actually quite simple. And it's not the position or occupation or spouse or our country that we choose that makes us strong and prosperous. It's a life of complete trust and obedience to the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit. God didn't try to make some road difficult for us. And when he sent Jesus and we accepted him, said, now my life belongs to you. Because 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Or it's, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all has become new. So that's passed away. I'm a new creature. He's got plans for me. I guess I can do him. Why? Because he thinks I can. If for no other reason, be like David. Encourage yourself in the Lord. Give thought and preparation for the next generation. There's a story of uh, James Dobson. Uh, you know James Dobson, a focus on the family. There's a story about his, um, I guess it would be maybe four generations, George McCluskey. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but it's a man, his, his great, great, I guess it would be his great, great, great grandfather. When he got married, he and his wife, devoted Christians, he decided to pray for the generations that would go after him. And it got to the place where he would pray for his children, his yet-to-be grandchildren, his yet-to-be great-great-grandchildren, and he would pray every day from 11 a.m. to 12 noon just for his children and the legacy that would go on after him. His children went on to marry. They were either pastors or married ministers. The next generation did the same thing. And then finally, the generation of James Dobson, one cousin, uh, along with himself, went to a university. His one cousin went on to be a pastor, and, and he felt like he was breaking the family lineage or legacy and went on to be a psychologist. But as you know, the rest has been history, and he's leaving a legacy. There's no man in our generation that has spoken to more families about child-rearing, about parenting, than Dr. James Dobson and focus on the family. What a legacy. So one particular man by the name of George McCluskey saw something way beyond him. And that could be you today. He's looking something way beyond you. Maybe you're a first-generation Christian here. Maybe your family didn't come from a Christian background, but you're setting. You're the George McCluskey. And you're the one now to be praying for that next generation. Well, I'm not even married yet. That doesn't matter. You can be praying into the next generation. I have my great-great-grandmother's diary when she lived in Russia. They had, they had immigrated from Holland to Germany to Russia. And while they were in Russia, they were being persecuted for their faith and knew that they would have to immigrate to another country and prayed. And the door to Canada seemed to be the one that was swinging open the most, and so they made plans and preparations to come here. But in her diary, she's already praying for her children, which is my great-grandmother, Margarita. They're praying for her that she would know Jesus and that she would put her full trust in him. Then that great-grandmother's diary, which I also have, Margarita's, she's praying for her children that are not born yet, her grandchildren, which would be my mother, and her, and her, yeah, and her children, that they would be Followers of the Lord Jesus Christ above everything else that they would put their faith and trust in God. I have my grandmother's, her greatest prayer, that all of her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren would love Jesus with all their heart and soul and might, that they would be able to put all their trust in him. They were a George McCluskey. And I'm living in the benefit of so many of those prayers of that generation. And I know it's not, I, I, I feel so blessed 
Who's going to be blessed in your life because you're doing that? Who in the generations to come are going to do great exploits for God because you took the time to pray for a generation that's not even born yet, and you're standing on God's word for them? That, that's all of us. We all have the opportunity to do that. But I'd like to say everyone in this room is going to say, yes, I will do it. There will be some of us that will. And we'll be the ones that will one day, hopefully, our generations to come will say, I'm so thankful, I'm so grateful when they immigrated to Canada that they found Jesus. I'm so grateful that they taught me the things of God's word. I'm so grateful that they prayed for me. I'm so thankful we get to be that. Actually, you know, another thing about King David that's quite interesting is he was in the, remember when he was in that pact with Jonathan, King Saul's son, and they had such a bond of friendship? Years later, after Jonathan was, Jonathan was gone, and David was now king, and he was ruling, and, he, and he's, you know what? Jonathan had a son. His son's name was Mephibosheth. Whatever happened to him? Other than the fact that when they were fleeing, a nurse that was holding him as a young boy fell down the stairs and crippled him. They'd never heard about him since then. They found him. And when they found him, they brought him to King David. And of course, he didn't know why he was being brought to the palace. But King David brought him, and he sat him at his table, and he said, you belong here with me because of the covenant that I had with your father, Jonathan. That's stepping out and leaving a legacy, because now it wasn't just for himself. It was for a, a, for a close friend. He remembered his father, Jonathan, and brought in Mephibosheth into his household. Number three, there's no quitting. What are the characteristics of leaving a legacy? There's no quitting. David had his fair share of failures, adultery, murder. Absalom, his son, that was after his kingdom and just undermined him numerous times. And also there was a, a sense, there was much more, but these are just a few. There was a sense that David decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to number everyone that's in my kingdom. We're going we're gonna to take a poll. We're going to find out who's all here. And going against wise counsel that said, I don't think you should do that. The Lord hasn't called us to do that. He said, no, 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 we're going to do it. And it's not that God's not into numbers. He wrote a whole book on numbers. And he, he's okay with that. He likes numbers. You, have you ever read how detailed when you come to numbers in the scripture? It's, it's so exact. So it's not that. It was the fact that David was doing it out of a prideful heart is I want to see how many people I'm overseeing. I want to see how many people I'm actually ministering to. And it was a, it was a prideful thing. First John chapter 2, where it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And he, he had that in him. Uh, actually, all three of those things showed up there. Peter, Paul, they failed at some point. Can you imagine what would have happened if Peter, at that time when the cock crowed, and he had denied the Lord three times, if he would have said, that's it, I give up, I can't do this. Who in the world did I think I was that I could actually be a follower of Jesus, let alone be any type of leader? I, I can't do this. What if he would have done that? What if Paul, when he was thrown off his horse, blinded, and had that supernatural experience with the Holy Spirit, what if after that he said, oh, that was just... I don't know, that was just an experience. That wasn't actually meant to change me. What would have happened to all of us? You realize the whole legacy of the, Christian, of the Christian family would have been different because of it. They failed. There was times in their life that failed. Paul was known, he was the one that put his signature on stoning for people who believed in Jesus prior to that. Failures. 
The Bible is full of not only victories, but it's full of the failures. This is humanity. And I'm so glad by the power of the Holy Spirit, when this was written, numerous authors over a wide span of time, that humanity in all of its good and bad is written in here. Can you imagine if he just was, let's, oh, let's leave out Bathsheba. We can't put that in. No. Uh, we can't put in Peter denying, no, let's not put that in either. That's what could have happened. But there's a reason why the Lord allowed us to see everything. Because it gives us courage that if they messed up and weren't perfect, and God still used imperfect vessels to present a perfect message, he can still do it in us. Amen? Amen. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, look for an opportunity today. Look for a decision to make today, an opportunity to do what? To do good, especially to those who are in the household of faith. So we do it everywhere we go, but in particular to the church family, do good. And Micah 6, 8, so what, what does God require of me anyway? Like, what, is, what does he want from me? Well, I'm glad you asked. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Again, so simple. God did not make this complicated. He said, just walk humbly with me. Love mercy. Act justly. If you do that, that's what I require of you. That's it. We can do that, right? We try to make this thing so hard. I got to do this. I got to do this. We have to do. We have to, you know, he's, you know, just enjoy being in this relationship with him. But don't quit. We can keep going. We can keep going. In closing, find a need and meet it. It's in the small decisions. It's the decisions you're going to make today. And that's good advice for all of us. Just seize the day. On the back of your page, there is an acronym for, the, for Think Big. Dr. Ben Carson, uh, who, who if you've seen the movie uh, Gifted Hands or read the book Gifted Hands, you would know his story. Uh, poor young man brought up, in a, his mother brought him up. Uh, he and his brother in Detroit and Boston didn't have much, was an F student in grade five. His mom decided to do something, and she said, you are going to watch three TV shows a week. The rest of the time, the TV is coming off, and you are going to read the rest of the time. Now, like most teenagers sitting here, I know that if your parents said, you can only watch three TV shows the week, pick it out, one tonight, one Wednesday, one Friday, whatever, you pick it, all of you here would go, that's such a good idea. I'm so glad you said that. I was thinking about that myself. <laughs> well, he wasn't any different than any other teenager. He did not say that, and he put up a huge fuss, and he, he goes into um, somewhat detail of how he had an anger issue, and, and he's, I wasn't this perfect kid. But some decisions that his mom helped make along the way, along with his own choices, he went from being an F student to a straight-A student in grade 7. Then he went on to graduate from Yale University, and then he went on to become one of the top neurosurgeons in North America, and he has 50 honorary doctorate degrees, and he's done great things in the area of medicine. And he's the one that came up with this acronym, Think Big. Talent. All of us have it. You have a talent. It's good. Find out what that talent is and use it for the Lord. Number two, honesty. Choose it. Three, integrity, live by it. Nice, just be nice. 
It's amazing how just being nice gets you somewhere. Just be nice. Okay, knowledge, desire it, books, reading. Read, do it. I, in-depth learning, go beyond why things, want to know why it works that way? Want it. And finally, the G being God. He starts it and completes it. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He said if there's one legacy he could leave, he would be happy, and that would be this. Let people know they have a brain. You have a brain here this morning and uh, a brain to make wise choices. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to download free notes from this message, then visit our website, www.coastalchurch.org.